Book One, Chapter Two of Rookwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Paul Curran. Rookwood by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book One, Chapter Two The Skeleton Hand. Dutch. You are very cold. I fear you are not well after your travel. Ha! Lights! Oh, horrible! Fur. Let her have lights enough. Dutch. What witchcraft doth he practise that he hath left a dead hand here? Duchess of Malfi. The sexton's waning candle now warned him of the progress of time, and having completed his arrangements, he addressed himself to Luke intimating his intention of departing but receiving no answer and remarking no signs of life about his grandson he began to be apprehensive that he had fallen into a swoon drawing near to luke he took him gently by the arm thus disturbed luke groaned aloud i'm glad to find you can breathe if it be only after that melancholy fashion said the sexton but come i've wasted time enough already you must indulge your grief elsewhere. Leave me, sighed Luke. What, here? It were as much as my office is worth. You can return home some other night, but go you must now, at least if you take on thus. I never calculated upon a scene like this, or it had been long ere I brought you hither. So come away. Yet, stay. But first lend me a hand to replace the body in the coffin. Touch it not! exclaimed luke she shall not rest another hour within these accursed walls i will bear her hence myself and sobbing hysterically he relapsed into his former insensibility ah oh, this is worse than midsummer madness said peter the lad is crazed with grief and all about a mother who has been four and twenty years in her grave i will e'en put her out of the way myself saying which he proceeded as noiselessly as possible to raise the corpse in his arms, and deposited it softly within its former tenement. Carefully as he executed his task, he could not accomplish it without occasioning a slight accident to the fragile frame. Insensible as he was, Luke had not relinquished the hold he maintained of his mother's hand, and when Peter lifted the body, the ligaments connecting the hand with the arm were suddenly snapped asunder. It would appear afterwards that this joint had been tampered with, and partially dislocated. Without, however, entering into further particulars in this place, it may be sufficient to observe that the hand, detached from the socket at the wrist, remained within the grip of Luke. While ignorant of the mischief he had occasioned, the sexton continued his labours unconsciously, until the noise which he of necessity made in stamping with his heel upon the plank recalled his grandson to sensibility. The first thing that the latter perceived upon collecting his faculties were the skeleton fingers twined in his own. "'What have you done with the body? What, why have you left this with me?' demanded he. "'It was not my intention to have done so,' answered the sexton, suspending his occupation. "'I've just made fast the lid, but it is easily undone. You'd better restore it.' "'Never!' returned Luke, staring at the bony fragment. Ah. Oh. Of what advantage is a dead hand? Tis an unlucky keepsake, and will lead to mischief. 
The only use I ever heard such a thing been turned to was in the case of Bow-legged Ben, who was hanged in irons for murder on Hard Chase Heath on the York Road, and whose hand was cut off at the wrist the first night to make a hand of glory, or dead man's candle. Hast thou never heard what the old song says? And without awaiting his grandson's response, Peter broke into the following wild strain. The Hand of Glory from the corpse that hangs on the roadside tree, a murderous corpse it needs must be. Sever the right hand carefully, sever the hand that the deed hath done, ere the flesh that clings to the bones be gone. In its dry veins must blood be none. Those ghastly fingers white and cold, within a winding sheet enfold. Count the mystic counts of seven, name the governors of heaven, then in earthen vessel place them and with dragon-wort encase them, bleach them in the noonday sun, till the marrow melt and run, till the flesh is pale and wan, as a moon-ensilvered cloud, as an unpolluted shroud, next within their chill embrace, the dead man's awful candle-place, of murderous fat must that candle be, you may scoop it beneath the roadside tree, of wax and of lapland sesame, its wick must be twisted of hair of the dead, by the crow and her brood on the wild waste shed. Wherever that terrible light shall burn, vainly the sleeper may toss and turn. His leaden lids shall he ne'er unclose, so long as that magical taper glows. Life and treasure shall he command, who knoweth the charm of the glorious hand. But of black cat's gall let him I have care and of screech-owl's venomous blood beware. "'Peace!' thundered Luke, extending his mother's hand towards the sexton. "'What seest thou?' "'I see something shine. Hold it nigh the light. Ah, that is strange, truly. How came that ring there?' "'Ask of Sir Piers. Ask of her husband!' shouted Luke, with a wild burst of exulting laughter. "'Ah, tis a wedding ring, and look, the finger is bent!' It must have been placed upon it in her lifetime. There is no deception in this, no trickery. <laughs> it would seem not. The sinew must have been contracted in life. The tendons are pulled down so tightly that the ring could not be withdrawn without breaking the finger. You are sure that coffin contains her body? As sure as I am this carcass is my own. The hand, tis hers. Can any doubt exist? Wherefore should it? It was broken from the arm by accident within this moment. I notice not the occurrence, but it must have been so. Then it follows that she was wedded, and I'm not. Illegitimate. For your own sake. I'm glad of it. My heart will burst. Oh, could I but establish the fact of this marriage, her wrongs would be indeed avenged. Listen to me, Luke, said the sexton solemnly. I told you, when I appointed this midnight interview, I had a secret to communicate. That secret is now revealed. That secret was your mother's marriage. And it was known to you during her lifetime? It was, but I was sworn to secrecy. You have proofs, then? I have nothing beyond Sir Piers's word, and he is silent now. By whom was the ceremony performed? By a Romish priest, a Jesuit, one Father Checkley, and at that time an inmate of the hall, for Sir Piers, though he afterwards abjured it, at that time professed the Catholic faith, 
and this Checkley officiated as his confessor and counsellor, as the partner of his pleasures and the prompter of his iniquities. He was your father's evil genius. Is he still alive? I know not. After your mother's death he left the hall. I have said he was a Jesuit, and I may add that he was mixed up in dark political intrigues, in which your father was too feeble a character to take much share, but though too weak to guide, he was a pliant instrument, and this Checkley knew. He moulded him according to his wishes. I cannot tell you what was the nature of their plots. Suffice it, they were such as, if discovered, would have involved your father in ruin. He was saved, however, by his wife. And her reward, groaned Luke, was death, said Peter coldly. What Jesuit ever forgave a wrong, real or imaginary? Your mother, I ought to have said, was a Protestant. Hence, there was a difference of religious opinion, the worst of differences that can exist between husband and wife. Checkley vowed her destruction, and he kept his vow. He was enamoured of her beauty, but while he burnt with adulterous desire, he was consumed by fiercest hate, contending and yet strangely reconcilable passions, as you may have reason hereafter to discover. Go on, said Luke, grinding his teeth. I have done, returned Peter. From that hour your father's love for his supposed mistress and unacknowledged wife declined, and with his waning love declined her health. I will not waste words in describing the catastrophe that awaited her union, it will be enough to say she was found one morning a corpse within her bed. Whatever suspicions were attached to Sir Piers were quieted by Checkley, who distributed gold largely and discreetly. The body was embalmed by Barbara Lovell, the gypsy queen. "'My foster-mother!' exclaimed Luke, in a tone of extreme astonishment. "'Ah!' replied Peter. From her you may learn all particulars. You have now seen what remains of your mother. You are in possession of the secret of your birth. The path is before you, and if you would arrive at honour, you must pursue it steadily, turning neither to the right nor to the left. Opposition you will meet at each step, but fresh lights may be thrown upon this difficult case. It is in vain to hope for Checkley's evidence, even should the caitiff priest be living. He himself is too deeply implicated. Peter stopped, for at this moment the flame of the candle suddenly expired, and the speakers were left in total darkness. Something like a groan followed the conclusion of the sexton's discourse. It was evident that it proceeded not from his grandson, as an exclamation burst from him at the same instant. Luke stretched out his arm. A cold hand seemed to press against his own, communicating a chill like death to his frame, "'Who is between us?' he ejaculated. "'The devil!' cried the sexton, leaping from the coffin lid, with an agility that did him honour. "'It's aught between us! I will discharge my gun. Its flash will light us.' "'Do so,' hastily rejoined Peter. "'But not in this direction.' "'Get behind me!' cried Luke, and he pulled the trigger. A blaze of vivid light illumined the darkness. Still nothing was visible, save the warrior figure, which was seen for a moment, and then vanished like a ghost.' The book-shot rattled against the further end of the vault. "'Let us go hence,' 
ejaculated the sexton, who had rushed to the door and thrown it wide open. "'Mole! Mole!' cried he, and the dog sprang after him. "'I could have sworn I felt something,' said Luke. "'Whence issued that groan?' "'Ask not whence,' replied Peter. "'Reach me my mattock and spade, and the lantern, there behind you, and stay. It were better to bring away the bottle.' "'Take them, and leave me here. "'Alone in the vault? No, no, Luke. "'I have not told you half I know concerning that mystic statue. "'It is said to move, to walk, to raise its axe. "'Be warned, I pray. "'Leave me, or abide, if you will, my coming in the church. "'If there is aught that may be revealed to my ear alone, "'I will not shrink from it, "'though the dead themselves should arise to proclaim the mystery. "'It may be, but go, there are your tools.' and he shut the door with a jar that shook the sexton's frame. Peter, after some muttered murmurings at the hardihood and madness, as he termed it, of his grandson, disposed his lanky limbs to repose upon a cushioned bench without the communion railing. As the pale moonlight fell upon his gaunt, cadaverous visage, he looked like some unholy thing suddenly annihilated by the presiding influence of that sacred spot. Mole crouched himself at a ring at his master's feet. Peter had not dozed many minutes when he was roused by Luke's return. The latter was very pale, and the damp stood in big drops upon his brow. "'Have you made fast the door?' inquired the sexton. "'Here is the key.' "'What have you seen?' he next demanded. Luke made no answer. At that moment the church clock struck two, breaking the stillness with an iron clang. Luke raised his eyes— a ray of moonlight, streaming obliquely through the painted window, fell upon the gilt lettering of a black mural entablature. The lower part of the inscription was in the shade, but the emblazonment and the words, Orate pro anima reginaldi rookwood equitis orati, were clear and distinct. Luke trembled. He knew not why, as the sexton pointed to it. You have heard of the handwriting upon the wall said peter look there his kingdom hath been taken from him ha listen to me of all thy monster race of all the race of rookwood i should say no demon ever stalked the earth more terrible than him whose tablet you now behold by him a brother was betrayed by him a brother's wife was dishonoured love honour friendship were with him as words he regarded no ties he defied and set at naught all human laws and obligations and yet he was religious, or esteemed so, received the viaticum, and died full of years and honours, hugging salvation to his sinful heart. And after death he has yon lying epitaph to record his virtues. His virtues! <laughs> Ask him who preaches to the kneeling throng gathering within this holy place what shall be the mother's portion, and he will answer death. And yet Sir Reginald was long-lived. The awful question, Cain, where is thy brother? broke not his tranquil slumbers. Luke, I have told you much, but not all. You know not as yet, nor shall you know your destiny, but you shall be the avenger of infamy and blood. I have a sacred charge committed to my keeping, which hereafter I may delegate to you. You shall be Sir Luke Rookwood, but the conditions must be mine to propose. No more, said Luke. My brain reels, I'm faint, let us quit this place and get into the fresh air. And striding past his grandsire, he traversed the aisles with hasty steps. Peter was not slow to follow. The key was applied, 
and they emerged into the churchyard. The grassy mounds were bathed in the moonbeams, and the two yew-trees, throwing their black jagged shadows over the grave hills, looked like evil spirits brooding over the repose of the righteous. The sexton noticed the deathly paleness of Luke's countenance, but he fancied it might proceed from the tinge of the sallow moonlight. "'I will be with you at your cottage ere daybreak,' said Luke, and turning an angle of the church, he disappeared from view. "'So,' exclaimed Peter, gazing after him, "'the train is laid, the spark has been applied, the explosion will soon follow.' The hour is fast approaching when I shall behold this accursed house shaken to dust, when my long-delayed vengeance will be gratified. In that hope, I am content to drag on the brief remnant of my days. Meanwhile, I must not omit the stimulant. In a short time, I may not require it. Draining the bottle to the last drop, he flung it from him, and commenced chanting in a high key and cracked voice, a wild ditty, the words of which ran as follows. The Carrion Crow The Carrion Crow is a sexton bold. He raketh the dead from out the mould. He delveth the ground like a miser old, stealthily hiding his store of gold. Caw! Caw! The Carrion Crow hath a coat of black, silky and sleek like a priest to his back. Like a lawyer he grubbeth no matter what way, the fouler the offal, the richer his prey. Caw, caw, the carrion crow, dig, dig in the ground below. The carrion crow hath a dainty maw, with savoury pickings he crammeth his craw. Kept meat from the gibbet it pleaseth his whim, it can never hang too long for him. Caw, caw. The carrion crow smelleth the powder, tis said, like a soldier sheweth the taste of cold lead. No jester or mime hath more marvellous wit, for wherever he lighteth, he maketh a hit. Caw, caw, the carrion crow, dig, dig in the ground below. Shouldering his spade, and whistling to his dog, the sexton quitted the churchyard. Peter had not been gone many seconds, when a dark figure, muffled in a wide black mantle, emerged from among the tombs surrounding the church gazed after him for a few seconds, and then, with a menacing gesture, retreated behind the ivied buttresses of the grey old pile. End of Book One, Chapter Two